Last week, you may remember that I shared the story of the Brethren Christians there in post-World War II Germany and the great struggle that they faced in how to love one another, how to love each other as fellow believers in, in a context where so many had made such different choices in the wake of or in the face of a common crisis. Well, that is hardly the only time that the church has faced such a dilemma. Uh, in the year 250 A.D., the emperor Decius gave an order that everyone within the whole Roman Empire would be required to make a public sacrifice to the traditional gods. Everyone. Those who chose to submit to this order would be given a certificate. They, they could hold and keep as proof that they had obeyed the emperor in this, in this uh, edict. However, those who refused, it was made clear from the start uh, that they would be imprisoned and tortured and killed. Many Christians refused that order, and that is exactly what happened to them. They were imprisoned and tortured and killed, and some of the accounts are just absolutely gruesome of what Emperor Decius's lackeys did to these men and women. That said, many Christians did not refuse. They chose to make the sacrifice, to publicly burn the thing or, or, or whatever it was, to lay on an altar publicly, affirming some adoration and, and loyalty to a pagan god. You see the tension? They were referred to, I'm not, I don't think it would have been at the time immediately, but in the near term after, they were referred to as the lapsed. A year after this edict was handed down from Emperor Decius, he died in a battle. And that edict was rescinded. And one of the bloodiest periods of Christian persecution came to, thank God, literally, an end. But now the church had a problem, right? What do you do? What do you do in a situation where you have individuals, brothers and sisters, professing believers who have taken such radically different stances in the, in the face of a common crisis. They have to be able somehow to come together. What will they do? Um, I bring this up, as I said last week, in no way, in no way whatsoever to say that the degree of the tension is the same. That would be absurd. Still, there is a loose parallel here to where we are today in the 21st century West as the church as we transition from 2020 to 2021. And as we consider that many of us have had and made clear very strong opinions and taken public strong stances on such divisive things as COVID-19, and racial, racial reconciliation, and politics. And there has been, as a consequence of that, a great deal of relational bruising along the way. 
What are we to do? Pretend it hasn't happened? That would be foolish. Let's just call it for what it is. Foolish to pretend it hasn't happened. Now, what are we to do? What has Jesus said? What has Jesus said we are to do? That's where we need to go. And so we're going to go back to John 13. We are drilling down deeply into these two verses in John chapter 13. Uh, Last week was part one. This is part two. Lord willing, we'll delve into it even a little further uh, next week. And as I said somewhat cheekily but not entirely sarcastically last week, if you're looking for some Scripture memory to do over the stretch of weeks here in late February, early March, um, John 13, 34, and 35 is not a bad place to go. That's our text. Hear now the Word of God. John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray together. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Those words have been around a very long time, Lord. You gave them to David. And he prayed them with all earnestness. May we do the same. Would you help us to hear? Would you help us to really, really hear these words from John 13? To not play them down, to not play games, to hear you, our Lord, our Savior, our King and Redeemer, speaking now. Help us hear. Amen. There are times it is entirely right to have standards that are very high. There are times that it is right to have standards that are very high. Here are some scenarios. Wedding planning. Um, Olympic training. Studying tax law. Packing a parachute. Brain surgery. Rocket telemetry. There are times when it is completely right to have your standards high, when it is simply not okay to just settle for okay. That's exactly what we see here in John 13. Jesus is setting a standard in front of us, an incredibly high standard. He is not leaving us to guess how we are to engage with 
one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus, as his, uh, as his followers, as fellow disciples. He is not leaving it to chance whatsoever, uh, not leaving us just in the dark to wonder. I, I wonder, how should I engage with you and how should you engage with... No, no, he tells us very, very, very plainly here in this text. Um, he has marked out the path for his disciples and made it very clear, very, very clear what that path is to look like. We are to love one another just as He has loved us. We are to love one another just as He has loved us. Now, what would that mean? What would that look like? What are the consequences of walking that, 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 uh, that road? Well, there's at least three things that we need to drill down into and, and to grapple with together if we are to rightly understand and live this out, this call uh, to, to love one another as He has loved us. And there's three things. You've got the outline. This is where I'm going, these three points. First, we need to understand and grapple with the path of Jesus' love. Secondly, we need to understand and grapple with the way of Jesus' love. And then thirdly, finally... We are to understand and grapple with the fact of Jesus' love. Each one of these are critical. Each one of these are absolutely critical. Let's take them in turn. First, the path of Jesus' love, the the, the path, the way, and the fact. The path of Jesus' love. By that, what I mean is imitation. Imitation. We are to love as Jesus has loved us, right? So it's pretty clear there's a sense of, at least, to some degree, a life of imitation, imitation of, of our Lord. Now, quickly, let me give a disclaimer. Uh, we really need to be clear as to what we do and don't mean when we're talking about, about this in, in a biblical sense. We are not called to emulate Jesus in the sense of He is our great hero and He has given us rules and regulations and standards by which to live. And if we just do that, then it's okay. That's not what we're talking about. And we're talking about the imitation of Christ or walking this path. That's one of the problems, frankly, with years ago, some of you may be old enough to remember this, the WWJD thing, the what would Jesus do? Fine to a degree. However, it has a propensity to fall into works righteousness. If I just do this, if I just live like this, then things will be okay. And that's not, was never the intent of it at all. Ours is never a path of emulation. Ours, rightly understood in terms of the imitation of Christ, is a response to Christ. Or let me put it another way. Martin Luther talked about it this, in this sense. He said that uh, we do not imitate Jesus in order that we would become His own. It's rather we become His own and therefore... As a consequence, an overflow of that, we then become imitators. And that, that distinction is, is absolutely positively crucial. So that's the disclaimer what we really don't know, don't mean, rather. What do we mean when we speak of this call to imitation? Well, for all the disclaimers, and we could talk for a little longer about that, we still have to come back to this fact. Jesus says, love as I have loved you. And so there's certainly an element here where we have to talk about the path on which we are to walk, this path that He Himself has blazed. 
And in fact, we see this as a theme in the Scriptures. Keep your, your thumb there in John 13. Let me just show you a few places in the New Testament speak very plainly that Christ-likeness is God's goal for us. Christ-likeness is, in fact, God's goal for us. Romans 8, chapter 29. Romans 8, chapter 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, skipping a couple books over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we... And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So you see God's plan, eternal past, the Romans 8 text. We see it out, it's outworking in our present right now in the 2 Corinthians 3 text. And now, now a glorious, we see something of a glorious future awaiting us. 1 John chapter 3 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Now, the point being, this is the Lord's goal for us. He has in mind Christ's likeness for His followers. Ought that not to be our own goal as well? If that is His desire for us as His people, ought that not to be our desire for ourselves as well? Surely it, it, it must be. This is an essential part of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower, to be the follower of, of another, to, to have one's heart in sync with His plans for us, including... His specific plans pertaining to us, which in this case has to do with Christ-likeness. So we're talking about walking this path, the imitation of Christ. It's just some stunning things to consider. We have, from the beginning, been made in the image of Christ. Now, we are fallen, broken creatures. So at the same time, we have to say we are being remade in the image of Christ. And again, this is His purpose, His desire, His plan for us. It ought to be our purpose, our desire, our goal in this. And, and we ought to say, though, before we go any further, that we ought not to let the immensity of this restoration project cause us to play it down and push it to the side. Because, right, if, if you recognize, like if you, if you, if you have in mind... Um, let me try and I'm trying to reaching for an illustration here. We're driving off into, uh, into the countryside, and you see this dilapidated, rottened out, falling down old barn house, farmhouse, right? And you're told, go fix that. Okay? Bring it up to code, bring it up to specs the way it was 150 years ago. I mean, that would be daunting, would it not? Well, we're kind of like that old farmhouse. Really. Our temptation is to allow the immensity of the transformation that is required to cause us to downplay the fact that that is actually what we were to pursue. No. No. Our response needs to be to lean into Jesus. 
Our response needs to be to lean into Jesus, to be praying to Him, relying upon Him, trusting in Him day by day, through the day, in every possible imaginable way, breathing the prayer out through the day, Lord, make me like Yourself. Help me to see what that means, what it means to follow You in this and change my heart. Heart. This is the call to imitation. It is very much tied to this call to love one another as we have been loved. Well, that then takes us to the second point, not just the path of His love, but the way of His love. This gets into the specifics. In what ways has He loved us, right? We need to think of, if we're, if we're, we have to delve into this. If we are to love one another as He has loved us, we can't go into that. We can't even talk about that if we don't understand how He has loved us, right? How can we emulate something we don't even understand? We've got to delve into this just just a little bit. So let's just start. Gosh, we could spend a week on on just the second point, maybe five minutes. Um, Let's just think in terms of who He loves. And for that, let's just spend a little few minutes in, in, in John's gospel considering who Jesus loves. Uh, stay with me there in John 13, your thumb, but let's go to John 15. John 15, verse 9, uh, we see Jesus um, stating His love for the disciples as a group. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Oh, my goodness. Did you, did you hear what He said? I can't imagine that the disciples could have heard this. It's too much. It's too much. It's an ocean contained in a thimble. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Let's keep going. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my love, may, my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, you, you get the chain of love that Jesus has just put forward here? He says, okay, the, just as... The Father has loved the Son, so the Son has loved the disciples. And just as the Son has loved the disciples, the disciples are to love one another. That's the chain. That's the chain. It's absolutely stunning here. The disciples love. Who does He love? His disciples as a group? In astonishing ways. What else do we see? Well, not just, it's not just love spoken of in mass, you know, in a group. I love y'all. But there's, there's singular pronouns used here as, as well. I love you. You as an individual. You sitting in there in that seat. Five times in John's gospel, the apostle refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. What an interesting way to refer to oneself. And you have to wonder, what's going on there? It has to be, at the very least, something along these lines. He, could never, he never got over it. All those decades later, when he's writing the Gospel of John, he's still undone in his self-understanding. Or maybe you could say redone, right? Rightly done in his self-understanding as the one whom Jesus 
love. That's not the only way we see in John's gospel it being expressed in a particular way towards individuals. You see it in John 11. John 11, verse 5. It's almost a throwaway reference, but we ought not to throw it away, not, ought not to move too quickly. John 11, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. And then if you keep reading through John 11, you come to understand very quickly, clearly His love is particularized. It is tailored. It is individualized to the individual, personalized to them and who they are and and their needs. It is, on the one hand, His love is an inclusive, when you think of the group and the individuals, it is an inclusive embracing, and at the same time, it is specific in its extension, targeted. Laser-sighted. It's absolutely stunning. That's who he loves. How about, how about this? How about how he loves? How about how he loves? That's something worth considering here as well. Well, certainly we see his love is, is, uh, shows itself, manifests itself as a humble serving. Let's go to John 13, 1. John 13, just verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that sets in motion the washing of the disciples' feet. And the plan is to circle back to that in a couple weeks and to delve down into that. Uh, So certainly, though, we see Jesus' love with that shows itself as a humble serving. Not just that, though. A costly giving. A costly giving. Uh, Back to John 15. John 15, verse 12, again, and reading a little further. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus is not speaking here theoretically. Like, in case you're wondering what a great love looks like, here's... No, this is exactly what He was going to do and did. This is exactly how He has loved us. Humble service, great cost, sacrifice, a sacrificial love beyond the bounds of our understanding, the giving up of Himself for the sake of another. You see something of this illustrated in a lot of different ways. I only just come I'm going to land on this one in the last of the Harry Potter books. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Uh, there's a it's, it's really actually a theme. The idea of sacrificial love comes up again and again and again through the series. But it becomes so obvious you can't miss it here towards the end of the 7th book and the eighth film. Um, There's a line. Let me quote here from the the book. Finally, the truth. Lying with his face pressed into the dusty carpet of the office where he had once thought he was learning the secrets of victory, Harry understood at last that he was not supposed to survive. And so what happens, spoiler alert, but it's been around long enough, I don't really feel like I'm doing any wrong by saying spoiler. Um... What happens as a consequence of this realization on Harry's part is he sees his friends suffering and dying in this battle against the evil wizard Voldemort. 
and he recognizes that he must, he has no choice, he must give himself up. And so he leaves his friends behind, not knowing what's going to come as a result, and goes off for one final walk into the forest. He um, goes to his death as his enemies mock and jeer him. He refuses to pull out his wand. He refuses to fight. He simply gives up his life for his friends, much as his mother had done for him years before. I've heard no few say that they just had to stop at that point to gather their emotions or at that point in the film. And you see this again and again and again in so many different works of art, in in film and in literature in, in so many ways, where one lays down their life in love for the sake of another. And, and we have to ask ourselves, what is it that causes it? What is it that strikes? Why is it that there is a chord? It seems to be. What's going on? There seems to be a chord within us that's resonating with this idea, this concept, this demonstration of love manifesting itself in the sacrificial giving of oneself for the sake of someone else. Here's what's going on. Here's why you feel your, feel your, eye, your eyes at times welling up or your voice cracking when you try and explain how you feel. It's not just sentiment. I mean, it may be. I acknowledge that. But it's not just that. It's that this chord is a cord that has been woven deep into the fabric of the universe. Friends, we were made to love this way. You're, the deepest part of your being is resonating with how you've been made and how you've been loved. It's resonating with how we have been loved by Jesus and how He is calling us to love one another because of the love of Jesus. That's what's going on there. Praise God. That's what's going on there. We are indeed called to love one another as Jesus has loved us. One last thing. We need to talk about not just the path of His love and the way of His love, but to say... We are called to love one another just as He loved us presupposes something, doesn't it? It assumes something, doesn't it? That we actually know and believe He loves us. If you don't know and believe that, you cannot love as you have been loved because you don't know that you've been loved. And so we have to go go further than just talking about the path. And further than just talking about the way, we've got to talk about the fact, the fact of His love that is so essential and so fundamental and foundational to all of of this. His love for us, His love for us as His own, as His followers, as His people, as His disciples. Let's look at John 15 again, John 15 verses 12 and 13. We've already read it, but I want to shine a light on something else here. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, who's speaking here? Who's speaking here? The omnipotent, eternal God, all things made by Him, through Him, for Him. In John's gospel, he is described as the Word, the Word incarnate, the bread of life, the light of the world. That's who's speaking. And what does he say? You are my friends. Why do we call people friend? Why would you call someone your friend? What's going on there? What's the dynamic in play there? Why is it that your heart skips a beat when someone publicly refers to you as their friend and means it? Because in that, there is, there is a freight train of meaning and significance. Yes, including common interests, likely, yes, but not just that. Affection, a bond, a loyalty, a tie, a faithfulness. Love, friend, Jesus says to us, you are my friend. We could just close and do the benediction right now. There's a little more. Because we can also say a little bit more in terms of maybe go a little more intensively, a little more personally. Because I'll grant you, it's plural when he says, you, are, you, plural, are my friends. We can get a little more particular, a little more singular here. It lands a little harder. It gets it, it some deeply personal things that we see in, in John's Gospels. It, it, turn with me to John 20. It's an extraordinary moment in John's Gospel. John 20, verses 30 to 31, where John is the narrator. So he's been telling us, recounting to us all these events. All up until, it feels the same, all up until this moment. And then it's as though, and I'm sure you've seen films and TV shows like this, you know, it's almost as though he, he, the narrator just turns and faces the camera and just speaks right at you. It's very jarring. And you're just reading along and, and understand what's, what's happening here. He just turns and faces you. And this is what we read in, in verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is trying, you know, 2,000 years later, in essence, you could almost say he's trying to reach in and bring in, embracing the reader that we now would actually believe, that we would actually hear and embrace these things and embrace this Jesus as He's trying to draw us close. This is so deeply personal here, the address, and it's so utterly wonderful as well. Now, I'm going to, for the first time this morning, leave John's writings and go to Paul. So if you'll bear with me, let's go to Galatians. Uh, this is uh, after John and Acts and Romans and the Corinthian letters. Um, you get to Galatians, Galatians 2, verse 20, where we read these striking words. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The personal pronouns are really worth tuning into here. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, put it this way. Read these words, me and for me, with great emphasis. With a firm faith, you may engrave this me on your heart and apply it to yourself, not doubting that you are among those to whom this me belongs. John Wesley, years afterward, reading Luther's commentary in the time period in which the Holy Spirit is working on his heart, bringing him to Christ and faith in Christ, John Wesley writes these words, reflecting on all this, in his journal. He said, I labored, waited, and prayed to feel who loved me and gave himself for me. There's power, such power in these pronouns. Friends, this is the fact of Jesus' love. That's the point. We have been called to love one another as He has loved us. He has and He does. This is the fact of His love. He has and He does. Uh, let, me, let me, if I may, take a moment to tell you the story of someone else in, in church history. Uh, you may not know her name, but I promise you know some of the fruit of her work. We'll get to that in a second. Anna Warner. Anna Warner's family lived in New York City where her father was a wealthy attorney. After the economic depression of 1837, her family had to leave their home in New York for their house up the Hudson River. As teenagers, Anna and her sister Susan wrote poetry and stories for children to assist their family during this time of financial difficulty. They published 106 collections in all. One story, excuse me, one of the collections contained a story called Say and Seal. Say and Seal which tells the tale of a dying little boy whose name was Johnny Fox. And in the story, Johnny's Sunday school teacher comforts him by singing a new song appearing for the very first time that goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's where it came from. That's where it came from. Now, this house on the Hudson where Anna and her family lived sat right across from West Point Academy. 
And Anna often went there to teach Bible classes to the cadets. This hymn that she wrote became very well known to these future military leaders. She was, in fact, so loved and respected by the soldiers there at West Point that upon her death, she was granted a full military funeral and buried there on the academy grounds. And she and her sister are the only civilian women to be buried at the cemetery at West Point. What's my point? The response of the community at West Point to this dear saintly woman as she delivered to them so faithfully, so tirelessly, the message of Jesus' love, their response to her, the bearer of the message of Jesus' love, is exactly, it tells us something, exactly what our response to that message ought to be yet today. Yet today. Jesus' love is not just, it is, it is not just, though, an historical fact It is a present reality. It is a present reality. So truly, we need to factor that into the words that we hear from John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I have given to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's an historical fact It's a present reality. As we look to Jesus and how His love is so real, it cannot but change us. It's it's like air that we're breathing in. And the more we breathe it in, it changes our lungs. It changes what we breathe out to the extent that we are looking and breathing and taking in the love of Jesus that He has for His own. We are to love as He has loved us, and oh, how He has, and oh, how He, he does. Go a little further as we're closing this up. We are, not, we are, we are called to the imitation of Jesus' love for us, but not just that. We are not just called to the imitation of Jesus' love for us, but we're also being told here of the enablement by Jesus' love for us. You understand? It's both at the same time. We're being called to the imitation of Jesus' love for us and at the same time being called to an enablement by Jesus' love for us. And let me be clear, by enablement, I don't mean well-meaning but wrongly exercise efforts towards another person and their wasteful, foolish patterns of living. That's not the kind of enablement I'm talking about. We're talking about enablement that is ability, that empowers and propels someone to be and to do something that they're made to be and to do, without which it's not happening. It's not happening. So, Perseverance. This is NASA's most recent Mars rover. Uh, it, was, it landed, touched down on the surface of Mars just over a week ago. Uh, its mission is to search for signs of life there on the surface or below the surface of the red planet. 
Uh, it is to date NASA's most autonomous rover. And by that, what we mean is, what they mean is it has to do with its power supply. It is certainly not a gasoline engine. You could imagine why, how you know, limited that would be on the surface of Mars. Uh, it's not a lithium battery. You know, how are you going to recharge that? It's not even solar panels, as was the case years and years before, but the problem is, of course, you get dust on those panels, and how long will that go? Now, basically what we're talking about here is a nuclear battery with plutonium processed, yes, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. That's on the Mars right now, okay? It's a little bit of Tennessee on Mars right now. Um, and that's exactly the, the, the uh, strategy that NASA has taken for years with their deep space probes because that means of power, whatever else happens with the mechanics uh, of, of the probes or the rover, the power can last for decades, for decades, which is exactly what you want in this situation, a demanding mission that's going to need reliable energy. It's exactly what we see here in John 13. A demanding mission where the energy, the power, is unlimited and never goes away. Never goes away. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Again, this is not just about the imitation of Jesus' love for us. This is about the enablement by Jesus' love for us. So we have to say, we are indeed called to love one another as we have been loved, as we have been loved by Jesus Himself. And that is His command and His promise. And His promise. Let's pray. Lord, we are just growing a little bit here and what it means in our understanding to be called your disciples. To having heard your call, having repented and believed, and having begun to follow you. We know that that call means the imitation of the one that we follow. And at the same time, the enablement by the one that we follow. Your purposes for us are so great, so much greater than we oftentimes reckon with. Our lives to take on the shape of the very second person of the Trinity, Christ-likeness. And that can only be by your work within us. And so we plead with you that you would give us both a greater vision, a greater sense of anticipation, and deeper, deeper, deeper reliance upon you. That as was said earlier, they would know we are Christians by our love. We pray in your name. Amen.